How are you? Great. Thank you so much for calling in, Michael. Appreciate the time and won't keep you too long, but uh, wanted to talk about what you got going on and some of the albums you've been a part of. And um, I guess before we fire up the DeLorean, let's start with the here and now and and the uh, pre-production services that you're now offering to bands. Yeah, okay. Kind of ex- well, explain that, because I think it's a great thing, especially for for our radio station. We have plenty of local bands listening and, and something to kind of open their eyes and ears to. Fantastic. Well, the principle behind it is that a good making a good record, you need to have a lot of prep work done. And I'm noticing more and more that because of budgets being less than what they used to be, there isn't enough time provided for prep work. In fact, a lot of people don't even know what that is anymore, <laughs> which is kind of very mysterious. To me, that you could actually make a record without doing that. So, what I thought would be a good idea would be to provide these types of services to people who need them at every possible level because they are so important. I would stress that in a lot of respects, they're more important than actually the physical recording because if you don't really prepare what what you're going to be recording, it really doesn't matter that you recorded it or not. You know, so it's something that I do separate from actually producing a record, although that is normally a part of producing a record as well. You know, it, it involves analyzing music, taking it apart, breaking it down, seeing mainly what's not working about it, because I think it's pretty easy for people to figure out what is working and, uh, you know, providing people with solutions for how to make their songs better and the overall project better as well. So you still will will take a, a project from start to finish and to, to completion. You're still open to that. But in addition to that, this is kind of a, a more budget-friendly way of, of still getting to work with you and, and still getting to utilize your skills and experience after all these years. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a more budget-friendly way, but it's not like a cost-cutting way. It's kind of like a, a supplement to a pre-existing recording where there's already a producer involved, let's say. In, in many cases, the producer doesn't have the time or the skill to be able to do pre-production like this, and that's where a service like this can really can really benefit an artist. And you'll do like just notes, or will you actually like even do your own re-edits of tunes as well? Um, there's no need for me to re-edit a song, although if, if that's called for, then uh, I'll do it. But generally speaking, everything can be explained pretty clearly to people. Generally, generally, people are doing their own demos now. So when I've provided notes, what happens is they'll go back to the drawing board and either re-edit themselves or just recut the whole song. And if I'm doing pre-production on an album, then there's usually like a little back and forth that goes on until everything's honed and everyone involved is satisfied that the results are where they need to be. I would imagine that one of the the main things that you hear in pre-production or one of the main notes you would have would be about maybe trimming some of the fat or or shortening bridge or, or, you know, only repeating that part two times instead of eight times or whatever the case may be, but kind of trimming the fat and kind of polishing up a song that way. Yeah, I mean, usually pretty obvious stuff, but what's less obvious is how parts are actually interacting within a song. You know, for example, rhythm section parts, the way they support a vocal, or the chords that are being used, and where a chord falls, let's say, in relation to a vocal line, or where a chord falls in relation to, you know, with the rhythm section that the drums and the bass are doing. You know, these are all very important things. The thing about a song is that it's cumulative. Every part in a song has to be there for a specific purpose. Even if it's just about interaction and nothing more, but it needs to interact properly and has to help glue the whole structure together and make it flow as an integrated piece of work. Oftentimes, this isn't the case. Oftentimes, we see music where parts, instrument parts, 
are not performing supportive roles for a vocal. Or you have different rhythms that are clashing instead of creating a very interesting polyrhythm. So there's things like that. It covers orchestration, arrangement, you know, song structure, you know, so it, it, it actually can get very, very deep and granular. And I imagine uh, lyrical analysis as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. A lot of times what the song is actually trying to state through the lyrics is not very clear. And it doesn't mean that a song needs to tell a story per se. You know, songs in a lot of cases, lyrically, or the song can just be about a mood and the lyrics are doing nothing more than reflecting or amplifying that mood. You know, right. so we want to get to the heart of what that is. What are you trying to say? What's the um, what's the intent behind this piece of music? And making sure that it's as clear and as focused as possible. And of course, the old saying, "Don't bore us, get to the chorus." Um, yeah, that's that's an important one. But you know, how you get to the chorus is almost as important as getting there quickly. Actually, in many cases, not. It's, it's as important as getting there quickly. Some of the best music. I'd say all, all, really all the best music is about tension and release. How you play with tension before you get to a point of release is very, very important. If you've got verse and bridge and B section parts that are leading you to a course that are purposeful and are actually doing something, that can be as exciting as when you finally get to the release point. I love it. And, it, and if you could boil it down to, to maybe a, a couple of, of things that, that are almost universal these days, that you would have some advice for some bands listening in tonight that want to take their stuff to the next level to kind of think about when they're writing music. Yeah, like be clear. <laughs> be clear about what it is that you're trying to say through your song. You know, in a lot of cases, people will build structures based on parts that they have lying around. Like, oh, this part's good, that's part, that part's good, let's put them together. But a lot of times people don't think about how the parts are interacting. And one of the reasons for that is as a songwriter, your perspective on your own work is totally subjective. I, I've seen people be relatively objective about their work, but there's no way that a songwriter is going to be subjective about what they're doing. Right. You know, which is one reason why it's imperative to have someone who's involved in the process who can be objective because they don't have the same kind of stake in the songwriting. They don't have the emotional connection since they didn't create it. If you can't see how parts are interacting, in a lot of cases you'll have created a structure that, it, that doesn't integrate well, even if it's constructed with really good parts. Because just because a part is good, all of a sudden when you put it next to another part that's you know, that might either be better or might kind of detract from the effect of that part. You've completely taken all the power out of it. It's very, it, it, very interesting stuff, yeah. you know, how songs are structured and how, this, how the dynamic works. And I'm glad that, that it's being talked about because I feel like it production as something that kind of did go away a few years ago. I feel like it's kind of coming back. Like you said, budgets are now less nowadays. And it did seem like for a while it was kind of the wild, wild west. And people were really getting their own pro tools and, and knocking out their own stuff without any sort of extra direction. And now I kind of feel like it's slowly kind of seeping back in that people are reaching out to, to producers like yourself and, and getting that work going again. Does it seem like it, that's kind of picking back up? A little bit. I think it's. I think it is starting to happen. You know, uh, one of the hardest things, one of the most difficult hurdles to surmount is the budgetary one. You know, the fact that people don't have a lot of time to make a record. But the thing that I always say to people is that no one's waiting for your next record. You know what I mean? And that is that actually puts a person in a position of strength because then it's like, okay, there's no reason for me to rush this out if no one's waiting for my work. So. 
what am I going to do? What is it that I can do to guarantee that, that, that my work is presented in the best possible light? And it is a whole new ball game nowadays, too. I mean, with downloads and it's kind of a bummer that the album art form is kind of not what it once was. And it's such a singles driven culture. But I feel like, again, that's kind of swinging back towards towards the light, towards towards the way we wanted to go towards albums and, and instead of just that song, single song. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that 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 swing of the pendulum is also going to be exciting accelerated um, by people writing better songs, yeah. you know? I mean, just the, just the idea that something needs to happen doesn't carry as much weight as if, you know, there's actually substance behind it. Like when people are starting to write better songs that, you know, that, that are powerful and really exp- and they're expressing themselves through their songs. Then you basically you've got the beginning of a revolution, you know? You've, you've, you've changed the tide so radically at that point that people can't help but listen. And they'll want to be involved like because the music starts to matter to them again. It has some kind of emotional resonance with them, and it means something. And speaking of a, of a revolution, I, I kind of feel and, and hope and, and pray that we are kind of on the, the cusp of one with, with what Greta Van Fleet is doing and, and the noise they're making and any thoughts on them and, and what is going on with this kind of almost 70s garage rock revival. It feels like it's kind of coming around again. Any any thoughts on on do you see it going that way and, and rock coming back or any thoughts on on Greta Van Fleet specifically? Um, I think my opinion about stuff like that is just another person's opinion. So <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you like this record or don't you like this record and like you know whatever. My my opinion's not important. I think as far as like as far as you know what music I, I feel is vital, but I think the potential exists at this point for exactly what you've described to happen. I think that there's, I, I think the stage is set right now. I think that people are, are, have grown tired and are getting more tired by the day of listening to overly processed pop music. You know, yeah. I, I, I think from my own perspective, and I will, I, I will speak my, from my opinion a little bit, I, I think the idea of trying to make retro records, again, is sort of a waste of time because try as anyone might, they're not going to be able to remake Led Zeppelin IV. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I wouldn't dare mess around in that territory. But you can take ideas and extrapolate on them and create something that's relevant to this time period and, and speaks to the, you know, to, to the world at this point right now. And I think that people who make guitar-based music are in a in an optimal position to do to do that right now it's just a matter of you know getting the boots on the ground and just getting stuck into the work and really working hard like really working super hard to make great songs yeah i agree but i, I feel it i feel like it's brewing i'm excited and got my fingers and toes crossed and michael i don't want to take up too much more of your time but i did want to kind of go through some of your uh, discography and, and talk about a lot of certainly a lot of the bands and artists and records that we play here at the radio station if i could with you and one to uh, start with the first one that came on my radar for the band and, and probably of you well i take that back to herbie hancock my mom used to blast that all the time but <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> for, for that song used to creep me out that video but that that's 
that's a whole uh, other topic, but that's okay. Uh, the one that I was referring to was Mother's Milk and, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, and kind of wanted to okay. go back. That you know, coming up on the 30th anniversary, and and kind of a uh, a rebirth of that band. It, it certainly new guitarists coming in, and John and and Chad on the drums, and kind of take us back in time to you can if you can to making that album with them and and infusing these two new guys into the band. Yeah, I mean it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the like the one I did before with them. It was super hard work, you know. I mean, they they didn't have a clear vision about what they wanted to do at that point in time, and it was really about getting the right personnel uh, in the band after they lost Hillel and Jack quit. I paid very close attention to the, the guys who they were trying out. I mean, we spent about like two weeks rehearsing drummers, and I'll never forget when Shad showed up. <laughs> I, I don't think they liked him very much because he seemed like a, a super rock guy. He came in with like the bandana. He seemed like he played in like a, he seemed like the kind of guy who would play in like a hair metal band or something. <laughs> and he was very, very loud and raucous. Right. But the minute he sat down at the drums, it was like, you know, I mean, there was no question he was a monster, but they still didn't want him in the band. <laughs> really? It was so funny. Yeah. I mean, they really, they were resisting because he just seemed like the wrong kind of guy. But, you know, when they started playing together, everyone got these stupid grins on their faces like, this feels right. I would call them up every day and go like, have you called Chad yet? I, I felt like <laughs> their mom. I kept nagging them. I was like, you have to call this guy up. You have to call him up. He's the best drummer. He's amazing. And finally, they, they brought him in. And John had been playing with other bands locally. And I think he started jamming with them and, and just kind of fell in. That's when the whole situation changed for them, you know, when they really became the chili peppers that everyone has become most familiar with. And one of the reasons for that is that John is actually a songwriter. You know, he actually could write a song. They'd never had that before. A lot of their stuff was basically composed around riffs and things like that. But John understands composition. And that was a really, really important asset that he brought to the band. So pre-production on that record took I don't know, two, three months. And then it was a while to record. It was a very difficult project, actually, because Lee and Anthony weren't getting along. So once they were done with their parts, they were gone. It was mainly me and John in the studio most of the time wow. trying to cobble the thing together. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was a very unusual process. But in the end, I think it worked out really well for everybody. Who was it that uh, threw out the idea to, to do the uh, Stevie Wonder cover? Well, we were kind of settling on two. I, actually, it was three. And it was um, The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff, If You Want Me to Stay by Sly, and uh, Higher Ground. And um, at one point, I think we were still going to cut The Harder They Come. It just never sounded right, you know. And as far as If You Want Me to Stay, that's not a song that, like, I, I, I know they mess with it later. But from my perspective, that's not a song that you really want to redo. It's like one of those things that, like, nah, don't touch it. The first time was great. <laughs> I'd say like 70% of that song or more is actually the vocal performance, you know, and Sly is kind of untouchable. Like you just, there's no one that's going to, that's going to redo that song and make it sound and feel as good as he, as he did. So we got put off that one pretty fast and I lobbied really hard for higher ground. I was like, come on, come on, come on. This is the one, this is the right one. Eventually, we just wound up recording it, and it stuck. That's one, though, looking on the surface, too. Like, how do you mess with Stevie? I mean, what an incredible vocal performance, but they nailed it and, and, and certainly put them on the map. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's different, too, because it's more of a song than If You Want Me To Stay. Like, If You Want Me To Stay really really doesn't modulate a whole lot, you know? It stays in the home key for pretty much the whole song. I mean, there's a couple of changes, but, like, it's not like there are whole sections that modulate or anything like that, you know? Right. And it really is based on that vocal performance. I mean, Stevie is Stevie, there's no question. But also you're taking a keyboard-based song and doing it with, like, you know, loud guitars. and The minute that Fleet did that, I was like, oh, my God, that's a tagline right there. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that put, put them on the map with that. I mean, the, the funk, bringing that funk and, and still having the rock edge to it, like, that was worlds colliding at that time. Yeah, and doing so really nicely, I might add. Very yeah. proud of that one. Absolutely. And uh, an album that uh, it, coming up on an anniversary or just passed, actually, it's, it's 25th and certainly odd in the timing talking, but I have to talk about Soundgarden and Super Unknown. And yeah. curious, just thinking back, we're upon the anniversary of uh, Chris passing. Do you remember the first time you met Chris? Yeah, actually. It was when I was meeting with the band to see about producing their record. Like I went, I flew up to Seattle and, and met with them and we talked and, uh, you know, he was uh, Chris. <laughs> he he was never a very outgoing person. Like I, he asserted himself when he needed to, but he was pretty reserved a lot of the time. But the opportunity to work with him and as well as the band was something that I was I was very very excited about. I kind of heard more recently that uh, he had a big impact, of course, singing. But I understand he wrote a lot of the guitar as well, which I didn't know originally. Um, well, on his songs. On the songs that he wrote, yeah. Like on Black Hole Sun, for example, like that's his compositions. Yeah, he composed all those guitar parts. Speak to that tune the first time he played that for you. Well, the first time I heard it, he sent me a tape. He sent me a demo of the song. I was in a total state of shock when I heard it. I couldn't believe it. It was so good. I played it 15 times in a row. Wow. Um, I just kept playing it over and over and over again. I couldn't believe how good it was. And I called him up and I was like, you're an absolute genius. <laughs> and he was confused. He didn't know what I was talking about. It was really funny. I had heard a rumor that he had kind of written that song to, to kind of, because it was like the anti-Soundgarden song as far as being such a, a light, fluffy, I guess, kind of song versus, you know, the, the dirge that they normally bring, that he kind of did it um, jokingly like, hey, this is something you wouldn't expect from us. No, that that definitely wasn't the case. Actually, the song came from a conversation that I had with him, believe it or not. Wow, tell um, me about it. I was getting concerned because a lot of the songs that, that, that he was sending me, they were starting to sound very much the same. There wasn't anything there that, that seemed very special to me, like... I felt that this record had to be special. There had to be there had to be stuff about it that just made it stand out from the you know rest of the pack of artists that were coming out of Seattle at that point, as well as like the rock records that people were making. You know, so because they had a very wide berth of competition, I felt the demos that I was getting really didn't fall inside that category at all. So I, I felt like I had to speak with him about it. You know, I asked him like what was his motivation behind writing some of the songs. What it came down to was I think he was really thinking of the audience that was going to be listening to the music. And I said to him, Chris, honestly, like you don't know any of the people who are going to be buying your record or who listen to your songs or anything like that. You don't know how they live. You don't know who they are. Like the only person you know is you. If you're going to write a song, if it's going to matter, it needs to matter to you first. That idea just kind of sort of flipped him out a little bit. <laughs> 
He's like, really? I was like, yeah, you know, like think of some of the, you know, what you want to write, like some of the music that you like. I, I said, well, you, you know, what do you like? And he said, well, I guess the Beatles and Cream. And I was like, all right, well, write a song that sounds like the Beatles and Cream. And he, and he was like, well, what if it doesn't sound like Soundgarden? And I said, don't worry about that. When you guys get together and play it, because you are Soundgarden, you're going to make it sound like Soundgarden. It'll just, it just will sound like Soundgarden. It's that simple. And that was the end of the conversation. And three weeks later, the tape shut up. Wow. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> wow, incredible. And, you know, in, in digging in a little bit on that album, I guess there was a lot of drop D tuning and kind of before its time on that album. Well, not exactly, no. I mean, people have been doing drop tunings and um, alternate tunings for a long time. I mean, Keith Richards has been playing like in, a, in a, like a like an open G tuning or something like that for I don't know since like the seventies and really I think the drop D tuning came, and and like drop C sharp came from Black Sabbath. They're the first people I know that did like heavy music that used drop tuning. People were starting to adopt them. Like it became it definitely became a thing in Seattle to drop to drop your E to a to a D to a D. Actually, on that record. I don't remember how many different, I think there were about six or seven different tunings on that record. And I know because somewhere I wrote all of them down. <laughs> there was one song, actually My Wave. Love that tune. Was, yeah, uh, believe it or not, that is a guitar tuned E-E and everything else is B. <laughs> what about, wanted to ask you about one other tune on that album, Fell on Black Days. That, believe it or not, that happened to be one of the other songs on the cassette that he sent me that had Black Hole Sun. Ah, that was song number two on that cassette, or? No, it was song number one. Oh, really? Led off with the Fell on Black Days. Fell on Black Days was the first one on there. The second one was a song where he had Jerry Cantrell play a lead, which was great, but it didn't really suit the record we were going to make. And the third one was a song called Tighter and Tighter, which wound up on the following record, which I regretted terribly because I love that song so <laughs> much. And I wish that it would have been on Super Unknown, but of everything, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I got there's so many great albums that you've done over the years. Um, just wanted to get you on a Thank few you. more here. How can we not talk about Osmosis and, and Mr. Ozzy Osbourne and his first album out of retirement and, and God, look at the shape he's in now, but I wanted to kind of go back to that album <laughs> and, and where he was at back then because that was kind of a, a relaunch of his career at that point. Yes, it was. Apparently, I thought, I think, you know, I just, I just want to try and make the best record with him that we could under the circumstances. And, you know, it, it seemed to get him where he needed to go. Well, and that was certainly the, the old Aussie. So uh, the partying Aussie, I imagine, and, and probably difficult to work with, or was he in good shape then? He wasn't, uh, he wasn't partying. I mean, we didn't have any episodes. There wasn't any, like, there wasn't any alcohol. I think he got into smoking pot for a moment. That ended really quickly. <laughs> and he just kind of overdoes whatever he's into. His thing on that record was to drink like a bunch of six packs of Diet Pepsi, smoke about like eight or nine cigars a day, chain smoke, I think it was drum tobacco, and drink like about two or three enormous cups of espresso a day. Wow. <laughs> and they never saw me. <laughs> and never ate. Wow. Just all cigarettes and coffee. Yeah, that's pretty much, and, and cigars, Diet Pepsi. <laughs> How about his right-hand man, especially on this album, is Geezer Butler. I mean, I, I think he's criminally underrated as a, a bassist, but talk about working with him on that album. <laughs> Actually, one of the funniest people I've ever worked with, in a very subtle, low-key kind of way. He's great. 
He's yeah. absolutely wonderful. He's a great guy. As I said, very funny. And uh, the interaction between him and Ozzy is kind of priceless. They've known each other ever since they were kids. Oh, yeah. And obviously the stories that they could tell, especially <laughs> of living in Birmingham, like you know, post-war Birmingham, is their um, classic. Love it. Love it. Manson and Mechanical Animals and his kind of Ziggy Stardust album. And wanted to get your thoughts on that and, and your involvement in that album. His first one without Trent. <laughs> It, it was a relatively easy record to make, actually. I mean, he had he had a good part of it um, mapped out. We had to spend about two weeks in pre-production fixing some stuff up. But we pretty much hit the ground running on that one. I was very happy with the way it turned out, too. It's a very special record. And it's definitely unique from all his other stuff as well. I was pleased because it gave him the opportunity to break away from the industrial genre that right. he had been associated with. I like music from that genre very much, but I think it's very easy to get typecast genre-wise if you're not careful. And I think if he'd done another record like Antichrist Superstar, it would have been much harder for him to get out from under that. The fact that he was willing to experiment and go into other directions on that record was, was really brave of him. And he actually took a lot of crap for it, too, unfortunately, which surprised me. Well, especially considering how successful it was. But his record company had, like, big issues with it. They felt that it wasn't performing as well as they were expecting it to after it had gotten released. But, you know, <laughs> it's, time has, has borne it out, and it's, uh, it's been incredibly well. So I don't think anyone's complaining about it anymore. No, I mean, I hate to be that, that guy that was that kid that was, at the time, young and naive and going, why didn't he get heavier on this album? But, you know, it, it also took him into another direction and, and made him larger than life creature. I think you're right. I think if had he stayed in that lane, it kind of would have cemented him in that genre and kind of kept him down there too, where with this album, it did make him that larger than life figure. Yes. Yeah. I think he was aware. I think he was aware of all that. He's, you know, obviously if you've seen or listened to any interviews with him, you can tell he's an incredibly smart person. He had a, he had a very good understanding of that stuff. And as with, I think all the work he does, he had a very, very palpable, strong image or, you know, vision of where he wanted this, this record to go, you know? So it was really about faithfully trying to reproduce that image. And also from my perspective, inject as much of my own stuff as I could you know, without making it my own personal statement, which I'm, I'm happy to say I did not do. <laughs> Curious kind of how much Marilyn writes musically. Does he play guitar? Does he bang away on a keyboard? Or does he kind of just say the mood that he's looking for or the vibe? Or I've never seen him do anything with a guitar. I mean, I, I think Twiggy was definitely writing a lot of the riffs on that record. But, you know, everyone was contributing as a band. One of the things that, that really sets that record apart, too, is Pogo, who's I felt was always like a secret weapon for the band. I mean, it wasn't enough that they had great musicians and a guy like Twiggy who was masterful on guitar and bass and, and would come up with these incredible riffs at a moment's notice. But, you know, someone who was incorporating these synth sounds and ideas into the music that were just so, so unique, doing stuff that no one else was doing and, and approaching them in a way that no one else was approaching this kind of thing either. His sense of tone and orchestration and everything else is really unique in rock in general. So he was really the, the secret weapon, the secret sauce of the album. I think he's a very important facet of that record. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that any one person is more important, although obviously without Manson, it's just not Manson anymore. But <laughs> right. 
would factor in as the most important. But if you take out each piece musically, you realize how important each piece really is to the entire picture. And I always felt that Pogo didn't get as much of, a, of his due as he, as he should have, because without those synth sounds and the effect that he was adding, you really have something that, that is missing a tremendous like dimension. Like what he provides for the music emotionally and just in terms of fleshing it out is impossible to underestimate. Especially with the, with the guitars kind of coming down on that album too, you really needed that, those other sounds to come out exactly you know especially like the don't like the drugs or or dope show which weren't as guitar driven as say rock is dead yeah and uh just one last one michael i gotta bring it up one of my all-time favorite bands that you got to work with corn and untouchables and wanted to go back to to that time and working with that band and where were they at musically i mean did you get to do any pre-production with them or was it just kind of get in and, and knock it out or talk to me about that album um that record was probably the longest time i've ever spent in pre-production that the pre-production on that record was seven months wow. <laughs> you know when we started they didn't really have any stuff they sent me a CD with a bunch of ideas on it, and I felt that based on what I'd heard, that none of what they presented to me could really be incorporated into a record. So we had to start from scratch. We just spent a lot of time. We, we wound up going to Arizona to do pre-production, actually. We rehearsed in a house, which is kind of different. You know, that's where all the songs got made, pretty much. Yeah, once we got in, we were recording, and I, I was I was going for a very specific sound on that record. When I met with them, what they said was, we want to make our dark side of the moon. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you want, you know. It's funny, though, when people say things like that, they never really realize what it is that they're asking for until they're in the thick of it, you know. But we were really incorporating a lot of, you know, bleeding edge technology, like stuff that no one was really using at that point in time. That was like the first rock session uh, that was recorded to, in 96K audio. So it was like probably the first high-res rock recording made. Like I said, we used a lot of technology that people weren't really weren't really using at that time. You know, the results spoke for themselves. It's a great sounding record. I think the sound quality really kind of propels the emotional impact of the record itself. But yeah, I mean, it was a very long and difficult process to get everything to work the way it did. With it being one of the, uh, the ones that you had the most pre-production on and all the technology, is it one of the... Uh biggest recording budgets you ever did or had oh without a doubt <laughs> that's that's what all of that was sounding like to me is it you know seven months in pre-production and then go into this house and then added all this technology i was sitting here scratching my head going this has got to be the the golden years if it were for you or the as far as budgets concerned at that point in time oh it was very high it was very high the record cost a lot of money the good news is it recouped <laughs> Once the record recoups, it doesn't really matter how much the record costs because people are making money from it. So was Here to Stay written then in that house in Arizona? Here to Stay was written in that house in Arizona. Talk to me about about that song and, and your first memories or first thoughts or where did it start with a riff or an idea? Or Almost all the songs started with riffs. Actually, all of them did, even the ones that John wrote. What would happen is, is that we'd sit in a room and the guys would, would hash out stuff together. They'd be like, what about this part? You know, and they'd, they'd be fiddling around a little bit. Like, how about this? Okay, change that note. You know, it was just sort of like a constant. It was sort of a constant stream of consciousness that was taking place. And that's really where all the songs came from. You know, the, here to stay is no exception. I think it was constructed over like a day or two. 
I seem to recall that it came together relatively fast, but now it was longer than that, probably like three. I remember when it was done, you know, because they'd lay the song down and, and then they'd send the instrumental portion of it to John, who didn't get up at the same time as everyone else. So his day started when everyone else's day was ending, you know. So we'd bring him a CD, he'd put it into his Pro Tools system, and he'd start working on melodic ideas. Like, he didn't work on lyrics until much later on. And, and he just kind of uh, scat or whatever, or grunt or make sounds or... Yeah, you know, it's just sort of, it's just different, you know, syllables that didn't necessarily relate to any words. But he'd work the melody out that way, and, you know, we got it back from him, and we listened to it. And I just remember the guys in the band were very, very excited. And I was listening to it going like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's what we need. That sounds like a corn hit. I, you know, I mean, I, it was hard. It, it's always hard for me to tell... It, well, it was hard for me to tell on that record what was going to be, you know, what was going to be the single, but it just sounded good. It, it, it worked, and everyone was really excited about it. And you know, that's when, when you're in flow like that. That's really all that matters. You know, I was going to ask you, kind of in, in wrapping up here, as far as your kind of ear for singles, so to speak, and if you had one over the course of your career, anyone that stands out where you're like, couldn't believe that it ended up being a big hit, and then vice versa, maybe one that you thought like, oh, this is this is going to be a smash, and it, it never kind of took off. It wasn't the song on the record that people gravitated towards. No, I think my instincts are usually were usually have usually been pretty good as far as that goes. I'm trying to think if there are any that where I was really shocked that it became uh, a hit. Nothing is really springing to mind. Hmm. Usually it was pretty, it's always been pretty obvious, or at least I felt that it was pretty obvious. I mean, with, if you hear a song like Black Hole Sun, if you don't hear that that's a single, there's definitely, <laughs> so, although what's funny about that, <laughs> having said that, when I first heard it, I, re I was so excited. I wound up playing it for a bunch of people. And the response that I got was pretty, like, pretty lukewarm. I just remember thinking to myself, are we listening to the same piece of music or am I going crazy here? Like, I think this is amazing. What's wrong with these people? Or is it me? You right, know? right. So, but well, we, we got the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, time time has proven that. Michael, yeah. I, I, I can't thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Damn, bro. Made it through the entire interview. Well, if you've tolerated me for this long, might as well tolerate me on social media as well. On Instagram and Facebook, you'll find me at Radioactive Mike Z. On Twitter and on Snapchat, MikeZ967. Until next time, man, keep those horns high in the sky. I'll catch you later. Adios. See ya. Bye-bye.